0: We have a lot to do tonight, so I guess we should uh, we should begin, um, and maybe begin with some reflections on uh, Hanukkah. It's a bit early, but really not not very early. We're just a couple of weeks away, and uh, Hanukkah, of course, is one of the you know, festive highlights of uh, the Jewish year. In my house, there's a running contest between my children about which of their holidays is their favorite holiday it's really no competition. It usually comes down to two holidays, Sukkot and, and Hanukkah. And they're not alone in kind of valorizing uh, this holiday. You know, the American Jewish consciousness, obviously, Hanukkah, is, uh, is one of the major holidays. Irrespective of whether it's just a rabbinic holiday, uh, this is, this is a, a, a sign of what it means to be Jewish uh, in America. And even if you could dismiss that fame of Hanukkah because of its proximity to Christmas, especially uh, this year. I live in Israel most of the time, and in Israel, Hanukkah is also a, uh, a major highlight. And even if this too you could dismiss because of the special message of victory, uh, military victory that resonates with the Israeli consciousness, at some point you sort of need to accept as a fact that Hanukkah is in fact a favorite and much beloved holiday. So we'll take that as a given. What I won't take as a given, and what what I want to figure out, is how Hanukkah survived uh, to the point that it could become such a beloved holiday. uh, It could become connected uh, to, so connected to to Jewish consciousness. Um, In a sense, its survival, besides the events it celebrates, but its survival uh, is a sort of miracle Right, the fact that it survived, especially in its early years, from sometime in the middle of the 2nd century before the Common Era, we'll go through the history in just a minute, really until the, uh, the formation of the Babylonian Talmud in the 5th or 6th centuries of the Common Era, the fact that Hanukkah survived this long period uh, is surprising and amazing. First of all, because it might just as well, as we'll soon see, have faded away. There were many holidays that existed, uh, especially in Second Temple times. And most of them you've never heard of. Or if you have heard of them, you're very good at Jewish trivia. So that's one challenge that Hanukkah has to confront um, in its survival. And the other, uh, also interesting, is that Hanukkah underwent certain periods of tension, even persecution, uh, in late antiquity were lighting the menorah or acting Jewishly connected to Hanukkah, had risks. So these are really the two main challenges um, that that are going to be on our minds, the two things that we would have thought would have made Hanukkah fade away like so many other holidays. Why don't we start our conversation by focusing on what Hanukkah is supposed to celebrate? Now, that question, of course, is a famous question, a question asked by the Talmud in Tractate Shabbat, my Hanukkah, what is Hanukkah? And we'll get to that passage uh, in just a minute. But let's talk about the name itself, right? Just looking at the name. What does Hanukkah mean? Right? And by knowing what it means, what is it celebrating? So what does Hanukkah mean? Dedication. Dedication, of what? The of the temple, exactly. If we look at our earliest sources, um, that describe the events leading up to Hanukkah and the celebration of Hanukkah, we find that this is the emphasis, the dedication uh, of, the Talmud, uh, of, the, of the temple, or in fact the rededication, perhaps of specific parts of the temple, the altar, like the ability to bring sacrifices again, the other accoutrements and vessels uh, in the temple. So, what I'd like to do in the next few minutes uh, is read through some of our earliest sources on the holiday of Karbuca and, and kind of get a picture as to what it's celebrating. And once we get that picture, our question will be sharpened as to why it survived as a holiday. So if you have your if you have your handouts, handouts I want to read together with you uh, selections from Greek texts, or at least texts that have survived uh, in Greek, uh, which tell us which tell us the story. The first is from the first book of Maccabees probably was not written in Greek, but in fact, uh, in Hebrew, but it survived only in Greek. Um, and it tells the Hanukkah story uh, very dramatically. This comes from the fourth chapter, where, the, uh, the Maccab- where Judah, Maccabees ha- uh, Judah Maccabee and, and his, uh, his soldiers and his family have achieved an important early victory uh, in their battles. Then Judas and his brothers said, See, our enemies are crushed, let us go up to cleanse the sanctuary and dedicate it. So all the army assembled and went up to Mount Zion. There they saw the sanctuary desolate, the altar profaned, and the gates burned. In the courts they saw bushes sprung up as in a thicket, or as on one of the mountains. They also saw the chambers of the priests in ruins. Then they tore their clothes and mourned with great lamentation. They sprinkled themselves with ashes and fell face down on the ground. And when the single was given with the trumpets, they cried out to heaven. Then Judas detailed men to fight against those in the citadel until he had cleansed the sanctuary. So we have a cleansing of the sanctuary which had been filled with all kinds of idolatry um, and other unattractive things in the sanctuary. He chose blameless priests devoted to the law, and they cleansed the sanctuary. We have that term again, and removed the defiled stones to an unclean place. They deliberated what to do about the altar of burnt offering, which had been profaned, and they thought it best to tear it down so that so it would not be a lasting shame to them that the Gentiles had defiled it. So they tore down the altar and stored the stones that could be in a convenient place on Temple Hill until a prophet should come to tell what to do with them. This is a very early um, expression of of an idea that is important in halakha, about waiting until Eliyahu, Elijah the prophet, will come and solve certain cruxes. Then they took unhewn stones, as the law directs, and built a new altar like the former one. They also rebuilt the sanctuary and interior of the temple and consecrated the courts. They made new holy vessels and and brought the lampstands, right, the Noah, the altar of incense, and the table into the temple. Then they offered incense to in the altar and lit the lamps in the lampstand. And these gave light in the temple. They placed the bread on the table and hung up the curtains. Thus they finished all the work they had undertaken. So, what's being described here? What type of work? Right, what type of activity is being described here after they come and secure the temple? Restoring the abodah? Restoring the abodah, but very physical labor. Right? In Hebrew, we have this term shikutsi. She puts see about what you do when your house needs quite a bit of work, things aren't where they're supposed to be, falling apart a bit. They went in there, and they worked hard. Some things they were not able to establish, like the altar. And they worked hard to rededicate the temple. Right? It's almost like a, a, a mini rebuilding uh, of the temple, both for purity reasons and also because things simply had been uh, destroyed. And then we hear about the celebration that accompany this, basically rebuilding, this rededication. Early in the morning, the 25th day of the ninth month, which is the month of Kislev, so there we have our date, in the 148th year, according to the way you count in the Greek context, they rose and offered sacrifice, as the law directs, on the new altar of burnt offering that they had built. So now, with everything in place, so the sheep would seem successful. They were able to <coughs> start the korbanot, start the sacrifices. At the very season, on that very day that the Gentiles had profaned, it was dedicated with songs and harps, and lutes and symbols. All the people fell on their faces and worshipped and blessed heaven, who had prospered them. So they celebrated the dedication of the altar for eight days, and joyfully offered burnt offerings. They offered a sacrifice of well-being and a thanksgiving offering. They decorated the fronts of the temple with golden crowns and small shields. They restored the gates and the chambers of the priests and fitted them with doors. There was great joy among the people, and the disgrace brought by the Gentiles was removed. Then Judas and his brother and all the assembly was determined that every year, at that season, the days of dedication of the altar should be absorbed, observed with joy and gladness for eight days, beginning with the twenty-fifth day of the month of Kislev. So we have, again, <coughs> securing the temple after the stites of battle is, uh, is won, re-cleaning it, building it, rebuilding it, uh, and then uh, re-inaugurating the sacrifices of the Apodah uh, in the temple. The last part is very interesting, and we're going to think about that quite a bit in the next few minutes, is the declaration that this celebration wasn't just spontaneous, but it's something that's actually going to be done every year, year in and year out. What might this remind you of in Tanat actually? explore? Exactly. Uh, towards the end of Megillat Despair, the there is actually a complicated section which emphasizes the fact that the Jews did not simply celebrate a victory, right, and celebrate the fact that they uh, that they avoided the destruction, but they, through a kind of bureaucratic process, uh, ensured that this holiday would be celebrated every year. So, from when is this? Course? So the first Maccabees is from, there's a debate among scholars, but it's from the second century before the common era, perhaps a couple of decades after the events that are described. So it is an early source. Uh, it's a relatively rel- reliable source. Though again, it's a source that it was not really accessible to Jews uh, until relatively recently. This source was transmitted in Greek, because it had been translated into Greek by the church. Um, and for that reason, sort of, was beyond our um, consciousness, uh, in a way. Now, I'm not going to read the next source, but I will refer to it. This is 2nd Maccabees. 2nd Maccabees, if we were to get into the details, it's again, also Greek work, somewhat later, probably uh, the early first century before the common era, this too is a debate. And it's based on, a, the work itself tells us that it's based on a kind of five volume set, history, uh, on the events uh, that took place, which were then kind of epitomized uh, and or- reorganized uh, into a very very compelling narrative. If you haven't read, the- read these uh, books, they're really incredible, and I highly recommend them, um, not only because they're you know, fascinating and fill in blanks, but you can often, as we'll soon see, find connections between these sources and more traditional sources, the Gemara's, um, the, mission, uh, the, the, the other sources which refer to, to Hanukkah, but I just w- I will say that this source as well emphasizes that the celebration is of the purification of the sanctuary, the rebuilding, the kind of scene that take place, um, and the reinauguration uh, of, of this festival. There's also another reference source which we won't have time to go into that refers to the fact that Hanukkah is somehow connected to the holiday of Sukkot. If there's time for the question and answers, maybe we can uh, pursue that. But this source as well paints that picture of Hanukkah as a Hanukkah, as a rededication um, of, of the, of the Beit HaMikdash. And finally, the third source as well, which is not as ancient, but is based on ancient sources. This is Josephus to so the first century of the common era, right not before the common era, but the end of the first century of the common era, he too describes the battle securing the, the sanctuary, securing the temple, rebuilding, re-inaugurating uh, the temple, and then declaring that this is something that should be done every year. We'll have occasion to look back at just in uh, interest in it. But the reason why this is important, and I'm emphasizing the fact that the, the holiday, as described in our earliest sources, um, emphasizes this this rebuilding, this rededication of the temple. It's because it would seem to um, sack the cards against Hanukkah's survival. If you think about it, right? If Hanukkah is a celebration of a rededication and rebuilding of the Second Temple, then it's a bit of a killjoy. <laughs> the Second Temple has been destroyed. Beit Hamikdash has been long gone for 2,000 years. So we're celebrating a temporary victory, a temporary rebuilding of the base of Mecca, and ultimately was destroyed. Right? We can understand, and, and we will, you know, one day be able to celebrate the rebuilding of the third base of Mecca, which we're told will last forever. But the second base of Mekdesh, which is destroyed, celebrating kind of a temporary rebuilding, is is funny. Uh, and not only is it funny, it kind of would seem to. Um, seem to set the cards against the survival of Hanukkah. In in fact, if we look at the sources that Jews did have access to, that Halakha worked off of, Halakha was not working off of the Books of Maccabees, it wasn't even working off Josephus, as we uh, recognize it. There's a medieval version, but nothing like this Josephus. Halakha, the calendar, uh, the earliest source that defines the Halakha calendar uh, is... Source number four, known as Migilat Ta'anit. Migilat Ta'anit is actually composed of two parts. Um, the early part, the part that I'm referring to, is really basically just a list of dates. Um, and these dates have halakhic import. <coughs> On these dates, because of various happy celebrations, happy occasions, one is not allowed to fast. Like, that's the main kind of takeaway of these dates. And on some of the occasions, one also is not allowed to eulogize at a funeral. So even if there were to be a funeral, which is naturally a sad occasion, one cannot eulogize uh, on, on some of these dates. Okay? And it's, it's really just a list of, of dates. The vast majority of them are unknown today. Uh, we have two that are very well known. We have Chanukah and Puru, and we'll get to that in a minute. But the vast majority of these dates... Um, are, are not known, and there's good reason for that. Uh, first of all, based on what I just said, many of the dates celebrate various Hasmonean victories. If you know even a little bit about the history of the Hasmoneans of the Chashmonaim, you'll know that there were some victories. Right, they won some battles, and they also lost some wars. Uh, and the significance and, and 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 the meaning of celebrating holidays of a long Long gone dynasty, uh, which did not have the, the most spectacular end, is, is funny. Um, not only that, in fact, there's a long, uh, significant halakhic discussion about whether, in fact, these holidays should be celebrated. So if you look at source number five, and this is a source passage that comes from the, the Batli, from the Babylonian Talmud there's another version of this discussion in the Yishalmi, in the uh, Talmud from Eretz Yisrael, we, uh, we have a debate about whether Megillat Tanit, that work, has been nullified or not. Does it still have a lot of effect? So if we look very quickly at source number five, Yitzmar, has been stated, rab that Megillat Tanit, this work, has been nullified. Meaning, it has no effect. If it is the 13th day of Adar, which is Yom Nikanor. let's leave aside the fact that this is now celebrated as Tamit But if you have that day, <laughs> you uh, should you so desire to fast uh, on that day, as we, in fact, do. Um, and there's no problem. Rabbi and Rabbi Yeshua and Levi Amri, they say that, in fact, has not been nullified. So there's a debate between these different different camps. Are the dates still in effect, and are they not? The the passage continues with a very interesting debate that's related to a famous verse from the Nabi's Charyah about certain days in the Jewish calendar, four days, which have been observed as days of mourning, and which will be turned into days of celebration. So the question is, Can one learn from that verse in Zechariah and apply it to Megillat Tanit? Can one say that the same way that these days were kind of reversed from days of mourning to days of happiness? So, so too, in the reverse, Megillat Tanit, they had once been days of happiness, but then they were no longer days of happiness. Perhaps, for that reason, Megillat Tanit should be nullified. This is somewhat... A version, I think, of my question and of many people's question uh, of how can you continue to celebrate a holiday like Hanukkah, right? Uh, if at the end of the day the temple's been destroyed, it hasn't been until long gone, and it doesn't seem like there's really that much uh, to celebrate. Now, of course, Rabbi Yochanan, Rabbi Yeshua ben Levi, and let's remember that name, Rabbi Yochanan, because we're going to come back to him. Um, we're adamant that, in fact, one, uh, one continues to observe and be happy uh, on Hanukkah, uh, and perhaps even to avoid uh, avoid fasting. So that that is a view that exists. But there is a dominant view that says that this entire Mithila is no longer <coughs> in effect. Let's think a little more about what's happening in Eretz Yisrael in the centuries after the second Beit HaMikdash has been destroyed. Um, and the rabbis are putting together the Mishnah and, and, uh, and even later, the Tamil Shalmi. What do we know about the celebration of Hanukkah? Right? Was it a major occasion? Would, 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 would the rabbis be able to recognize what my kids were talking about by saying that this is like a highlight uh, of the year? And in fact, if you search, if you search even thoroughly through Sifruta right, Tana'i, Tanetic literature, things like Mishnah to Sefta, which were compiled... In the late second, early third centuries of the common era, you'll find that Hanukkah is barely a blip on the uh, on the radar screen. It shows up, let's say, in source number six, and I'll just mention these briefly, and you can bring the translation. Um, I had mercy on the trees. Um, it's mentioned as a kind of date in the calendar, right, for a certain basic laws. So it would be Korean, there are times in the winter, basically after Sukkot, before Hanukkah, where you bring your first fruits, so you don't read a special passage. Okay, doesn't tell us anything deep about Harukkah, It's just a day. Um, similarly, in Mishnah Tanit, source number 7, um, Hanukkah does show up, similar to what we found in Megillah Tanit, um, that it's a day that you can't declare public fasts uh, on Haruka and Kuri, right? which is something that we know. Again, you don't have any deep insight. We know that in the talks of Mishnah, according to this view, it still isn't fact. You're not supposed to have a public fast, but not much more than that. And even the one mention of lighting, right, the menorah, which for us is the activity, the symbol of what you do in Hanukkah, uh, is, is, is just kind of an aside. This is source number eight in Mishnah B'Pakamah, dealing with the laws of damages. If a storekeeper has a menorah on his front step in a way that might cause danger, right? is he culpable? Well, normally he is, but if he has a right to put it there, if he has a reason to put it there, say it's Hanukkah, so review Uthas says, then he's okay. So the Mishnah doesn't tell us anything about how you like, what you like, when you like, nothing of that sort. It talks about a day in the calendar, it has some calendrical significance, and people were lighting Hanukkah uh, candles. Uh, in fact, if we look back for just one minute at that source from Josephus, source number three. In fact, it's right above source number four uh, on, on the opposite page. Josephus does something very funny. He mentions another name of Hanukkah. Right? As a, as, besides the fact that it's a day of dedication, Chanukah is also... A, a festival of lights, right? This name is actually a very old name uh, for Hanukkah, if you see the bold, And from that time to this, we celebrate this festival and call it lights. Now why do you think we call it the festival of lights? (laughs) Because we like the menorah. That's what I would think Josephus would go on to say. He then says, I suppose the reason was because this liberty beyond our hopes appeared to us. And then hence was the name given to that festival. He waxes poetic, right, as is his want, and he refers to the symbol of light and hope and this sort of thing. He doesn't mention the fact, right, that a major activity that one does on Hanukkah is lighting the menorah. And clearly, from his perspective, this wasn't a central aspect of what Hanukkah was about. So if you kind of look at and survey our early sources uh, for Hanukkah, um, you find that today in the calendar, one was allowed to, and one was maybe even expected to like, but nothing more than that, right? We don't have that image of the family gathered around the Khanukiah and marking this as a as a highlight of the uh, of the Jewish year. I didn't bring, I I wasn't able to bring all of the sources that we have on Hanukkah, but even once you get to the Talmud Yerushalmi, right? So we're talking about the period after the Mishnah, in the third and fourth and early fifth centuries of the Common Era. There's very, very little emphasis on this holiday. We have a short discussion about which bracha you recite when you light the candles, and the significance and meaning of this bracha, but not much more than that. And on the other hand, in the Talmud we have a very, very extensive <laughs> discussion of the laws of Kamka. This appears, does anyone know which chapter this, this appears? in this discussion. I can't hear. It's in Bameh Madikim, a famous chapter in the Shabbat, Shabbat, which is read, according to many uh, customs, is read on Friday evening. So in this chapter, in the Talmudic discussion of this chapter, there's a very, very long discussion uh, of the laws uh, of Hanukkah. We could, in a way, we could call this tractate Hanukkah. even though the Mishnah doesn't dedicate uh, a tractate right to this topic. But the Babli, the Jews in Babylonia who put together the Talal Bavli, felt the need to organize basically a tractate uh, despite the absence of Mishnah dedicated dedicated to these laws. And that's really where we begin to see significant interest in this holiday, significant discussion uh, of this holiday. and that's what I'd like to now explore with you. So, up until this point, we've seen, first of all, a little bit of the history, which is valuable, uh, from the books of 1st and 2nd Maccabees, a little bit of Josephus, that this is the holiday that celebrates the rededication, rebuilding, and re-inauguration of the Basin English. Following this, right, we noted that this doesn't seem like there's much to celebrate once that temple has been destroyed. And indeed, Chanukah halachically appears in a long list of dates, the vast majority of which, according to the dominant view, are no longer uh, in effect. Um, and this is kind of confirmed by the little hints, right? The absences, really, of emphasis on Chanukah in the Mishnah, um, and even in um, the works of the early Marie, like in the and And then we get to the Bible. So, my main kind of argument tonight, my main suggestion uh, as to why Hanukkah survived um, and what the secret to its survival is, uh, is in fact related to these moments of tension, um, which I'm going to now uh, explain in, in greater detail. There's kind of two periods where we seem to have some friction surrounding Hanukkah the first in Arixisar El, as recorded in the Talmud Bapli, and later in Babylonia concerning the Zoroastrians, which were the dominant um, religion, uh, an ancient Iranian religion that was aligned with the Sasanians who were in charge of Babylonia and the entire Sasanian Empire. So these two moments of friction um, and in one case kind of persecution, I think, ironically, actually uh, um, energized uh, the community, uh, imbued... Deeper meaning of this holiday, and allow this holiday to, uh, first of all, merit much discussion um, and emphasis, and ultimately to be codified in one way or another in the Talmud and then um, in the halakhic works that followed. Let's first, um, let's first talk about that first moment, um, that earlier moment. So again, the story of Hanukkah takes place in the second century before the Common in the middle of that century. Um, and it's a story, uh, in a way, it's a geopolitical story that has to do with movements um, and um, the extension of power and authority from the Seleucid Greeks, whose base was to the north of the Pharisee Israel, asserting, right, in one way or another, their authority and their power over the Jews in Pharisee Israel. Um, and particularly, right, coming to confrontation with a certain family of uh, the Ashma'im. That's the original story. Many centuries later, in the third century of the common era, right, this is the period of the Amora'im, we have a kind of crisis throughout the Roman Empire. Uh, It's called the crisis of the third century. And that crisis included, uh, again, kind of, complex geopolitical m- movements, including the Palmeis, right? the people who are to the north of Eretz Yisrael, who are asserting their power and their authority over Eretz Yisrael. Knowing this fact actually helps explain some, um, some curious statements that appear uh, in the Gemara. Um, let's look, if you can turn the page, let's look at source number 11. Does anyone know how uh, how long the candles have to burn? Half an hour. So half an hour is a, is a, is a chronological answer. But can you give me um, an answer that's related to that uh, human activity, right? Let's say I lost my watch. Where, how long do the candles have to burn? Until they stop walking in the street. Excellent. Until they stop walking in the street. Exactly. So if you look at source number um, 11, we see uh, a source that reads as follows. Right, the mitzvah, the observance, the commandments, commandment of lightning the menorah is hama From the time the sun goes down until right, there's no wayfair in the street. So, Kind of freely translated. Then we have an interesting um, uh, illustration uh, of when this is. Right? Well, when exactly is this? until when, Baruchana, taru Tarudai, until the foot, right, the feet of the Palmyrians have departed. Right, that seems to be what the meaning of this phrase is. Now, the medieval commentators um, puzzled over the, the significance of these people. Uh, be they Kalmarans or something else, because really Kalirans would be tadmuri um, why why does that matter? We understand why it's important to simply have people in the market, right The main significance of this commandment is to get the message out, to spread the gospel as it were, right There's too many it to let people know the miracles. So you understand why you need people walking around but why this this group of Kalmarians? um that's that's a real question. In an article that was published a number of years ago by scholar Moshe Benavitz, he suggested, and he related, uh, this, this uh, statement of Rabbi Yochanan to the geopolitical events that were taking place in the third century in Israel. And uh, it seems that Rabbi Yochanan, as we find in other sources, for example, source number 12, did not like the Palmyrians. He headed out to the Palmyrians. Um, For example, he said we do not accept converts from the Palmyrians. I mean, normally we accept converts from anybody except very specific uh, groups. Uh, And other sources as well uh, that seem to reflect an animosity uh, to the Palmyrians. It seems that Rabbi Yochanan saw in the Palmyrians a kind of re-emergence of the Seleucid Greeks. The same way, and this is a perception, this is not... Necessarily, you know, ethnically uh, the case, or even politically the case. But again, you have a group coming from the north, asserting power in Eretz Israel, and causing problems uh, for the Jews and others living living in the region. So it seems that when Rabbi Yochanan emphasizes the need, right, that the Palmyrians are still walking around in the marketplace, he's trying to say, make sure they see those candles. Make sure they see that we're still around, that we persevered once against you people from the north, and we'll persevere again. It's maybe even a radical reading, but there's something very um, enticing. But understanding uh, Rabbi Yochanan uh, this way. First of all, uh, if you remember Rabbi Yochanan, we met him earlier, he was of the opinion that Migilatani, in fact, had not been nullified. Right? And in fact, it was um, it was still uh, in effect, certainly for the holiday of founder. So he clearly is on the side and perhaps is even instrumental in making sure that this holiday survives, right? right? To make a kind of statement. Uh, in addition, and we can just look very briefly back at source number ten, um, there's a famous debate between Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel, as to how one lights the candles, right? Do you light on the first night, right, one candle and the second two, or do you go down, starting with eight and ending with one, right? What do we do? Right, we start from one and we go to eight, of course. Um, and the question, you know, is raised, why why do it one way and why do the other? Rabbi uh, Yochanan brings sights of tradition, from Sidon, right? Shnei would um, ha'ibut Sidon. I bolded that in the Hebrew release, um, which is interesting. Right? We don't have that many traditions from uh, rabbis or sages in Sidon. Where is Sidon? Where is Sidon? Lebanon. Lebanon, right. It's in the same region. So he brings this tradition from uh, these, these stages from up there, and he weighs in on this issue about how one should uh, light and why one lights. Right? Is it because of the principle of Mahdi Makodesh, Veva, that you always aspire to go higher and higher when it comes to holiness? Or is there an interesting um, kind of correlation to the sacrifices on Sukkot? If you remember, Sukkot has this connection to Chamukah, that you begin on the first day of Sukkot with a large number of cows, and then with each subsequent day, you bring less and less. Um, animals as corporate as sacrifices. And so that's just kind of another, perhaps, expression, an aspect of Rami Yochanan, his effort and his interest in Chanukah being connected to Saigon, Palmyra, Tadmor, uh, in one way or the other. So that's one moment. And perhaps, right, part of the impetus of, of encouraging the celebration of Chanukah is related to that. What I want to focus on now. Is more connected to my uh, research. Rabbi Silver said I'm very interested in kind of the context, the Persian context of the Talmud. Um, and I'd like to think about that uh, a bit for the next few minutes. So, so remember, until the Babali, until the Babylonian Talmud, we don't really have that much interest in the holiday of not much discussion. And in fact, even the discussion that appears in the Babylonian Talmud, we do have some sages from Eretz Israel, like Rabbi Yochanan. But the majority uh, of the discussion is held by Babylonians, uh, by Babylonian sages. This is interesting. Uh, One of the reasons that it's interesting is that we seem to have uh, evidence that life was difficult uh, for Jews in Babylonia when it came to their use of fire and even um, and particularly, perhaps, lighting the Chanukah the candles. Let's look just for a second at source number 13. So, this is not in that famous discussion, but a few, you know, a number of pages later. Uh, source number 13. married to Rav. Right? They asked Rav. Rav is a Amorah who moved down Bethel to Babylonia, and they asked him the following question. Can we car- carry the menorah, basically? Can we remove remo- it from before the Magi on the Sabbath? And he said to them, it is fine. Who are the Magi? So the Magi are uh, Zoroastrian priests. This is a very interesting word, chabare, that seems to be connected to a pasuk in of chover chaber, one of the um, prohibited kind of magical activities and Jews attached this name to Zoroastrian priests, but basically we have a reference to Zoroastrian priests, um, priests of this uh, ancient Iranian religion that was aligned with with the state, um, who seem to be threatening and taking away perhaps the Chanukiyot, the menorahs on on, uh, on Hanukkah. and there's a question as to whether one can move this on Shabbat. Um, so that they won't have access to it. Why would Zoroastrian priests um, be interested in fire? Is it a part of the ritual? Correct, it is a central part of, of the ritual. Um, the, the temples that Zoroastrians use to this day, in fact, are fire temples. The main ritual right, is veneration. They'll be, they'll be, they'll, they'll, they'll emphasize that they're not worshiping the fire. They're veteran the fire, but there's some clear emphasis on fire and its veneration in this religion. In fact, one of the interesting things about this religion is that it focuses on certain elements in this world, not just fire, which it sees as representing good. It's a dualistic religion. Um, And one has to do everything they can to protect these elements. The main elements um, are fire water, cattle, uh, which were also seen as good, uh, and the earth. And interestingly enough, right, these three kind of sacred, from their perspective, sacred elements caused uh, difficulties uh, for the Jews, in fact also for Christians based on their sources. If you look at source number fourteen, we can get a little insight into this, a fascinating source. It's a pasuk from Dvari, Begoi Naval right? that God says right, that he will He will anger us, right. I will anger them, with a foolish right, Naval nation. This is a very fascinating source that kind of plays with this term Naval, and I don't have time to go into those details. But what I do have time to look at um, are the decrees uh, that that this nation, the Chabarim, right, again, those Zoroastrian priests, make against the Jews. So, in the second line, Gazurul Shalosh Riknei Shalosh, they made three decrees on account of three things. Okay, I want to listen closely to the source. Okay, so there are three decrees that Zoroastrian priests make that affect the Jews on account of three things. Number one, Gazurul Basar. They make a decree against meat. Apparently, they kind of ban meat. Because of the gifts, there are certain gifts that one has to give to the Koineen, just like Truma and maser. One can't use all of the parts of the animal. And we were lax in, um, in this mitzvah, in this commandment. So, there's a decree right, that the Zoroastrian priest made on account of what, what what's the dynamic here? Exactly, medida canegam measure for measure. This is a basic principle as how punishment works. Talio, right? This is the Latin. You do one thing, and your punishment fits the crime. So we were not careful about um, this mitzvah. So God, right, metaphysically made it that meat was banned. Right? And the Zoroastrian priests were uh, his implements, his instruments. So here's another one. They make a decree against the bathhouses, the places in which we bathed. They closed them, I guess. Because we were not careful about immersion, right? Ritual immersion, it's They dug up... Um, bodies, after they've been married, because they were happy in the days of their festivals. The Jews celebrated Zoroastrian festivals. So these three principles, these three decrees, reflect the persecutions, or the difficulties, that Jews had under Zoroastrians. The meat we already explained, the, the bathhouses, right, again, are because we were not sufficiently careful about Wisma, having to do with water, so now everything's banned. We can't use any sort of bathhouse. And in a different sense, right, we celebrated right, on their festivals, so we were very happy. So God made us not celebrate by having them dig up the corpses. What's fascinating about this list, and it also works on another level as well, not just on the Midah Kinege Midah, but kind of real politic of what it meant to live uh, under Zoroastrians when the priests were zealous. Right? The first one has to do with slaughtering. The Zoroastrians do not believe in slaughter. In fact, they say that slaughtering is a terrible thing when it's supposed to strangle the animal, and that's how one um, kills the animal. And they refer to what they consider to be um, nasty Jewish practices of slaughter, and they are and their sur- sources in the Middle Persian. Similarly, right, immersion, by going into the mikvah while we are impure, we are contaminating the water. And this too is described in, in their sources. And finally, digging up corpses, which shows up a n- number of times in the Gemara, is a problem because we are contaminating the earth. So it seems that what was happening with Hanukkah, right, and what was considered to be our lack of care Right, for the fire when we lit the khimqiyot was, was part of this problem. It was part of this uh, perceived uh, lack of care for um, for fire. And we we, we seem to have paid for it. I want to quickly look at one other source in this direction, source number 15, which in fact informs halakhic practice to this day. It says... Ideally, one has to put the menorah next to the opening of their house. At the end of this source, it says, In a time of danger, one puts it on the table, and that is enough. So, this seems to be a bright, uh, it seems to come from Eretz Yisrael, but not necessarily. It could be that this source also reflects a situation right in... In, um, in Babel, where there was some kind of threat for the Chenuk And I'll leave this kind of for those of you who want to think about it. We have a similar source in source number 16, which describes how various persecutions affect the observance of the mitzvah of announcing lost objects. That source can be understood as reflecting a situation in Eretz Israel, maybe the Hijraeli persecutions. <laughs> But in fact, we're understood by the as having to do with the situation in Bavel under the Seleucians. So the same way that that source kind of came to refer to that reality, so to the sources of Hanukkah. Okay, so we have our two we have our two moments of kind of tension surrounding Hanukkah. The first uh, I want to argue is in Eretz L, where there's an, really an energizing of the holiday for those who want to kind of stick it to the Palmyrians and say that we will persevere as we persevered earlier with the Seleucid Greeks. The second is a little different. It has to do with kind of persecutions from the dominant religion, from Zoroastrianism, uh, which thought that we were not sufficiently careful about fire. Now, it's not simply kind of persecutions, that, that that's not the only way we should think about it, but in a way, it's kind of competition. And that's kind of the final thought that I want to uh, think about with you, competition about fire. Right? So the Zoroastrians have their fire temples, it's their key aspect that they worship, and we right, are using fire uh, for the, um, the lighting of the menorah. In fact, source number seven, which is the most famous, perhaps, uh, passage in that entire discussion of Hanukkah, tells us the story that we all know. Right? Initially, when we, we talked about the significance of this holiday, we looked at the earlier sources, which emphasized the dedication, the rededication, the rebuilding, the reinauguration of the services. Not one of those sources actually refers to this miracle, that famous miracle, the Nez Pacheshev. The story only shows up in the Talmudli. Right? And this is the, the what, what's fascinating about this source, the first line you might recognize from Migilatanit, right? That list of dates. Right? The second, the second section is what's known as the S'cholion. It's an explanation of those dates in Gilat Tanit. And this is the explanation that appears in fact only in the Batli. It does not appear and any source from Eretz Israel, any early source, that includes the original version of the scolion, so you could, in your spare time, look again at source number four. If you think about our three modes, Al-Anisi, right? We don't have any mention of this miracle, if you read it correctly. It includes P.U.T., right? Early P.U.T. from Eretz Yisrael do not mention this miracle. This miracle is only mentioned and emphasized in the Talmud I barely have to read it because you all know it. But for when the Greeks entered the temple, they defiled all the oils therein. And when the Hasmonean dynasty prevailed against and defeated them, they made a search and found only one cruise of oil, which lay with the seal of the Kohen Gadol, but which contained sufficient for one day's lighting only. Yet a miracle was wrought therein, and they lit the lamp therewith for eight days. The following year, these days were appointed a festival with the recital of Hallow and Thanksgiving. Right, so this is the story that we all know. And it's a so- story that puts front and center the celebration of this holiday, not the rededication of the Beit certainly not the victories of the Maccabees, but this miracle which we really haven't heard about in any other source. Right, it seems to come out uh, of nowhere. And I think part of what, what's interesting here and the way this story resonates is this is a way, perhaps, for Jews to kind of explain and this is just stage one, but explain what this ritual is about to the Zoroastrians who are trying to take away their candles. The same way that, in fact, Jews had to explain and prove to King Shapur, according to the Gemara, an important Zephanian king, why they buried in the ground and did not leave the bodies out as the Zoroastrians preferred. So perhaps this story would have been useful. Right? You need to emphasize this story. You can't emphasize the rededication of the temple. You have to explain why this mitzvah uh, is important. But I think it goes beyond that. I think there's a much, much deeper meaning. And I think a much deeper source to this story. So famously, it appears to only show up in the Bible. What I want to suggest in in the last source that we'll read together is that in fact this story, first of all, has very ancient roots um, in the Book of Second Maccabees. Uh, and not only that, right? this story and its pair that we'll soon see, has a very inspiring uh, and deep message about perseverance that has to do with fire, right? with a flickering uh, candle, right, the light against darkness. Source number 18 is from the beginning of the Second Book of Maccabees. At the beginning of this book, we have two letters Probably the letters were put together later in the book itself, and the purpose of the letters, as we saw in that other source, was to convince Jews to celebrate the holiday. Okay, It's addressed primarily to Jew, Egyptian Jews, Jews living in Alexandria, and telling them that this, this is a holiday that you should celebrate. The way the strategy of this source, the way it um, encourages Uh, Jews to celebrate Hanukkah is by saying that this is not a new kind of holiday. There's a long history to rededication festivals. And this is not the first one uh, that we're celebrating. So the the letter talks about a Hanukkah of Nechemia, a Hanukkah of Yerbyahu. There's a reference uh, to a Hanukkah of Moshe, uh, which is very interesting because this need to justify either the fact of Hanukkah or the length of Hanukkah by referring to other dedications shows up also in exhalation of M'Kilat Tanit, again in source number four. Um, And that that way the Jews will accept this holiday. I want to look at Hanukkah Mechad because I think that is very closely related to the story of the So this is source number 18 and it's verse 18. Um, Actually verse, yeah, verse 18. Since on the 25th day of Kislev. We shall celebrate the purification of the Temple. We thought it was necessary to notify you in order that you also may celebrate the Festival of Booths and the Festival of, of the Fire given when Nehemiah, who built the Temple and the altar, offered sacrifices. Now, the, for those of you who have actually learned Nehemiah and know the chronology, there are all kinds of issues here. But let's take this story at face value, or at least let's take it seriously. For when our ancestors were being led captive to Persia, right, the first Galut, the pious priests of that time took some of the fire of the altar and secretly hid it in the hollow of a dry cistern, where they took such precautions that the place was unknown to anyone. But after many years had passed, when it pleased God, Nehemiah, having been commissioned by the king of Persia, sent the descendants of the priests who had hidden the fire to get it. Why is it important for them to have original fire in Mishleach? Anyone have a guess? Why? Why hide the fire and bring it back? Near tummy? Near tummy, Near tummy. Correct. But what, there's even maybe a. a, a yeah, So th- there's a requirement that there always has to be a fire. Well, there was no fire burning. There's also a grave prohibition against bringing a right a strange fire, right? <laughs> so it's very important, right, to have. Have that ancient fire when you're rededicating the refound. And I continue. And then, we, when they reported to us that they had not found fire, what are they going to do? But only a thick liquid. He ordered them to dip it out and bring it. When the materials for the sacrifice were presented, Nehemiah ordered the priest to sprinkle the liquid on the wood and on the things laid upon it. When this had been done, and some time had passed, and when the sun which had been clouded over shone out, a great fire blazed up, so that all marveled. And while the sacrifice was being consumed, the priests offered prayer. The priests and everyone. Jonathan led, and the rest responded, as did Nechengah. Then there's this long, beautiful tefillah that's described. And if we go to the um, verse number 32 the last page, when this was done, a fire blazed up. But when the light from the altar showed back, it went out. When this matter became known, and it was reported to the king of the Persians, right? presumably a Zoroastrian, these are the Achaemenids, uh, who were in fact uh, worshippers of Ahura uh, Mazda, the main god of Zoroastrianism. So they informed him that in the place where the exiled priests had hidden the fire, the liquid had appeared, with which Nehemiah's associates had burned in the materials of the sacrifice. The king investigated the matter and enclosed the place and made it sacred. Okay, He made the place sacred. Obviously, from a Jewish perspective, the place already was sacred. And this is possibly a reference to a Persian practice where it's essential to make a boundary around right, a sacred space, a sacred fire. So he sees this as a sacred fire. Um, and with those persons whom the making favor, he exchange many excellent gifts. And the, and the letter goes on and again tries to convince the recipients to celebrate uh, this, this holiday. If you kind of distill what's in this story down to its basics, you find that it's quite similar. It's strikingly similar to the story of the Bible, the, the famous story that we know, the Nez B'Hashem. But you have a need to have fire, right? Sacred fire, holy fire, um, lit uh, in, in in the Beis In the story in the Gemara, of course, it's the Menorah. In the story in Hanya, it's the it's reuniting the Mishneh, which of course is the key, right? In these early accounts of Harav the Mishneh, uh, that that's really the emphasis. So they don't have it though. They're unable to find a fire because it's been a long time, right? Since the <laughs> The, uh, the galut, all they find is a little, little bit of something. And they take this little, little bit of something, and they put it where they need to put it. And God makes a miracle. And that miracle is, right, that the fire burns, the necessary fire to do the ritual burns, and they have, um, and, and they have inaugurated the, the Beit So I don't know precisely what the relationship is between these stories, but it's clear to me that there is a relationship. Uh, First of all, right, it means that the story or the type of story that appears in the Gemara is not Yeshmei, it doesn't come out of nowhere, but there are ancient, ancient traditions as the one about Nechemyon, a different period, that resonate with it. But I think even more, the story kind of hones in on a key aspect. Of, of what we're celebrating with Hanukkah and why Hanukkah survived, right? It's not just that against all odds Hanukkah survived uh, and therefore it's, it's with us to this day. It's because it was against all odds, because right naturally it should have disappeared, whether because of kind of listlessness, right, or that it no longer means anything after the Beit Hamikdash is be destroyed, or or because of various kinds of persecutions, right? Hanukkah should have. Um, faded away. Right? And fire is a very poignant symbol of this. Right? It's, it's very vulnerable. If You have a breeze, you have a little bit of water, uh, and it's gone. Right? And yet, right, it persevered. It lasted. Uh, and, it, and it was there uh, when we rededicated the uh, Beit HaMiknash, whether earlier according to that story with the or the story that the Gemara tells about Hanukkah, um, in uh, w- with the menorah, which which is a very poignant symbol of kind of God shining His shema on us. So I know it's early; uh, it's a few weeks before the holiday itself. But I really bless all of us, and I wish all of us the ability uh, to appreciate uh, how special this holiday is, not just because of its proximity to other holidays, but because of its real, very special message of perseverance, specifically uh, in the face of persecution and even banality. So yes. Thank you very much. There's some time for questions. And <laughs> yes? Uh, how much um, would you give the down of uh, um, to the difference between because the holiday we celebrated a revolt against the ruling people, and you know that most of the people didn't agree with various people and were opposed to the revolt and the sovereignty. And I think you and I actually a um, uh, you know soldiers, uh, Roman soldiers, who did So you wouldn't want to have you know an emphasis on a holiday which would emphasize revolting against the. Um,
1: Yes, yeah, so there,
0: there, are, there are interesting theories about why not only Rabbi Yudanasim and the Mishnah and Chazal seem to de-emphasize the holiday, but even the Chashmonayim, right? That they, they don't want to be seen as kind of um, rebellious. You know, in my telling, I, I'm not so sure. I think certainly a character like Rabbi Yochanan is, is very proud kind of speak uh, against the Tatmori and make sure that they see uh, uh, this miracle. So it is a theory, but I'm not so sure. Um, you you see like, Yeah, no, no, there is a, there's definitely, there's a voice in the Hazal which doesn't want to confront. Certainly, people like the Romans who are far more powerful than, than us, yeah, 100%. Yes? Um, this more of a clarification question. Yeah. Um, it's amazing how you're able to construct this mosaic showing how the, there's this almost polemic between the Zoroastrian and how these people are treating fire. So yeah. the question, therefore, is when did it start? I mean, if initially in the earliest texts describing Hanukkah, there's a rededication of the temple yeah. and there's even maybe a connection with the holidays to So now that we're in Israel and we're living in this Persian context. What started this new way of celebrating Hanukkah, specifically through fire? So I think that there's a kind of being in the end here. First of all, I'm not sure if this is what you're saying, but it's fascinating that in the earlier story, in the first, the second book of Maccabees, the Persian, right, Zoroastrian figure is respecting, right, our fire, right? And yet, the way the sources work in the Babli, in the Gemara, there seems to be some tension around this. So, First of all, there might be historical reasons um, and ups and downs concerning this very issue of other peoples, non Zoroastrians, using fire. There's a third century inscription uh, in Persian, Middle Persian, by a high Zoroastrian priest named Kurdir. And he boasts of many things. Uh, he boasts of the fact that he's protected the sacred elements of fire, water, uh, and cattle. Uh, And he also goes to persecuting a long list of religious communities, including Jews. Shahud is the word that he uses. So it could be figures like him, when they came to the fore and were more fanatical uh, or fundamentalist. Uh, You know, they would pursue, uh, they would pursue. But I was trying to, I didn't have the time to fully develop it, but the show how there could be persecutions, but there could also be kind of a shared emphasis, right? That we're now emphasizing this thing, Um, and kind of a shared space uh, as well. It sort of depends on the players, the types of people who are involved.